0: I'm Richard Hollingham. This is the Planet Earth podcast with tips this week on how to get rich. It's a process that requires diligence and patience and the ability to withstand a bad back. And if you thought this weather was bad, later we'll be hearing about efforts to predict summer storms that can devastate communities. Also new work to map penguin populations and how to run away from a T-Rex. Shares may have plummeted, currencies faltered and banks collapsed, but if you put money in gold over the last couple of years, you could have made a tidy profit. The metal recently reached its highest value ever, which is surely good news if you've got a gold mine. And I didn't have to travel that far to find one. The rolling hills of the Omar area of the west of Northern Ireland have some beautiful views. And to be fair, this isn't really one of them. Looking down over the grey sides of an open cast mine, a hole in the ground, really. But this is one of the most valuable stretches of land in Northern Ireland. This is actually a gold mine. And I'm with James McFarlane from Galantis, the operators of the mine, and Garth Earls from the Geological Survey of Northern Ireland. James, we're looking down here, you can hear the machinery away in the distance, really is a hive of activity, several diggers in the distance, there are trucks, and it's a vast area, just give me an overview of the operations.
1: Essentially what we're doing here is open cast mining a gold vein, or a series of veins that run north-south directly under our feet here, and so what you're seeing is the removal of rock in order to get at that vein, which... It takes a surprising amount of rock to be moved in order to keep the sides safe to get down to the vein, which is at the bottom of the
0: pit floor. You see there below you, way below us. I mean, you look at these diggers, and okay, there's one behind us. We know they're big, but it looks tiny. Looks like a toy digger. Yeah,
1: yeah. We're we're some depth there, and we, you know, we have permission to go down even even deeper than that because the vein runs almost vertically. We have to chase the thing down quite steeply if we're going to take it out from the surface. So you need a big hole in order to get at the gold.
0: Now, Garth, the rock here at our feet, it's brown, it's grey, it's sludgy. Where's the gold? What we're looking at
2: here is the country rock, or the most of the rock that doesn't contain the gold. This is the spoil. It's called a samite. It's about 550 or 600 million years old. But the gold is not in this rock. The gold is, as James said, is down in the bottom of the pit. It's in a vein that's comprised of quartz. And there's minerals associated with that quartz like iron pyrites or iron sulfide, which is also known as fool's gold. There's galena, which is lead sulfide. And that's really where the money is made in this operation. Because within the iron sulfide, even though it's called fool's gold, there is real gold. That's where it's contained and that's why this operation is is successful is, is is extracting the real gold from the fool's gold
0: and james we're not talking here lumps of gold not not sort of gold ingots so you talk about a vein there's not literally a, a pillar of gold down there it's tiny but these particles of gold are tiny
1: that's correct. I think there's a, often a misconception that we're all kind of paid in gold nuggets or something like that. The gold actually occurs as very, very tiny particles, so most of the time you'd need a microscope to see them. And so our job is to take out the sulphides that will contain the gold, separate them from the country rock and the quartz, the minerals and rocks that don't have any value, and from that then we can uh, take that material, and that's where the money is.
0: A few hundred metres away, a cascade of rocks is tipped into a crusher before being pulverised into fine powder. This is mixed with water and chemicals in a line of frothing tanks before being squeezed into an almost cake-like concentrate containing the particles of gold. This cake is shipped off to Canada for smelting, but the origins of the gold are important. Garth Earl says the Irishness gives it added value. In
2: the early days of the operation, the company realized that there were markets that could be tapped into because of the expatriate population of Irish people. I mean, typically the North American market has somewhere in the region of 30 million people who claim Irish ancestry. So uh, Galantis set up a design company and set up a manufacturing company that guarantee an Irish gold product which they sell into the market. So it, it's a sort of value-adding in, in, in the chain. Most of the gold will be sold uh, for various industrial or financial opportunities, but a small percentage of it is is retained and put into the market as genuine Irish gold jewellery. And there is a cash out of that, because market research shows that people will pay that little bit extra for the Irish gold wedding band, as an example, or Irish gold artefacts or jewellery. It's kind of nice, because back in the Bronze Age, I mean, some of the most spectacular gold artefacts are found in Ireland. It's always nice to try and think that maybe all those years ago, 4,000 years ago, that the industry started and what's happening now is a continuation of what our forefathers did
0: 4,000 years ago. Garth Earls from the Geological Survey of Northern Ireland. Later, all you need to know about panning for gold. This is the Planet Earth podcast from Planet Earth Online from an ice-locked east of England where it's just started to snow again. Weather forecasts have got increasingly accurate in recent years, but there are some things that still catch meteorologists unawares. Andrew Russell at the University of Manchester studies sudden violent storms. Sue Nelson caught him staring at the sky.
3: It has been a great day for the clouds today. We started off seeing some high cirrus clouds and then that cleared for some stratus that was really interesting and now we're getting to the rainy bit. But my work concentrates on small-scale summer storms, so the kind of things that would lead to flash floods.
4: And what makes those sort of storms different to the the general brooding storms that you tend to get at this time of year
3: today we're under the influence of a weather front which we understand really well our computer models can deal with them it's not a problem in the summer though it's quite different in that the storms are quite small
4: by small how what sort of size do you mean um
3: a kilometer or two which still sounds quite big but
4: that could be isolated just over a village though couldn't it yes
3: and The key thing is that the computer models that we use to predict them chunk up the atmosphere into chunks that are bigger than a kilometre. So if you try and calculate where the storm is going to be, it's very difficult because the resolution, the size of the grid relative to the storm, is too big.
4: Why would you study these particular storms?
3: The computer models are beginning to get powerful enough to actually see these things, to be able to resolve them. So the grid that it chunks the atmosphere up into is getting smaller as computing power develops. And now we need to really understand how these things develop so that we can start to think about predicting them.
4: How do you do this, though? What? How, how do you actually get the information that you need in order to predict these smaller storms that can still produce quite a lot of damage?
3: We have to actually go out into the field and, and observe these things as they develop. So What my work really concentrates on is what we call atmospheric lids. So for these we would use weather balloons that go up through these layers and radar that reflect or use radio waves to reflect back off these layers to to try and understand what their characteristics are.
4: Atmospheric lid, it's a a wonderful term. It immediately makes you think of a a cloudy teapot. How would you describe what an atmospheric lid actually is?
3: Well, clouds develop when air moves upwards, and in the kind of storms we look at, it's when you've got a warm bubble of air that's buoyant, so it's warm and less dense than its surrounding, so it moves upwards through the atmosphere. Now, if that warm bubble meets an equally warm layer, then it's no longer buoyant, so it's capped, and this is what we call a lid. The effect of these things is quite subtle, in that the name suggests that it just stops all vertical motion, so it stop the clouds developing. But what we're beginning to understand is how they encourage storms, how they make storms more likely. So the air starts to move upwards and then is capped by this lid, but then more air comes up, so you get more energy building up beneath this lid and it'll eventually explode into a storm.
4: So are these atmospheric lids important for your predictions then? The more you know where they are, the more likely there might be to be a storm.
3: Absolutely, yeah, and they're one of the the things that, Our current generation of computer models struggle to to see because they're quite small or thin, so the the model can't really represent them very well. So in readiness for when these models get more powerful, we need to really understand the physics behind them so that we can then put that into the prediction models and start to see how these affect predictions of storms. And um, under a change in climate, if, if our climate becomes warmer, we may see more of these storms developing. So it's important we get the science together now to be able to predict these things on short timescales in the future.
4: So it's being in a position where if, if there is going to be a change in climate, we experience these sort of floods more often, your work is going to help prepare and us, us for that and give us more notice.
3: Yes, so we want to be able to make better weather forecasts in a different climate where these kind of events might be more common.
0: Andrew Russell from the University of Manchester and no mention of Blue Skies Thinking. Now some other stories from the Planet Earth online website. Scientists trying to eradicate the American mink from the Scottish Outer Hebrides are a step closer to achieving their goal. The animals aren't native to Scotland, but since escaping from fur farms they've managed to spread, becoming a nuisance to seabirds eating their eggs and chicks. Well now researchers have tracked down where the last feral mink populations may be lurking using a sophisticated chemical technique. Technique. The hope is they can completely clear the islands of the alien invaders. To the other end of the world now, and researchers have developed a DNA fingerprinting technique to help them understand how Antarctic penguin populations are changing and protect threatened colonies. Penguins are under pressure from a changing climate, but also from fishing fleets which compete with them for food. And while some penguin colonies are growing, others are declining. This new method should help scientists identify which penguins are under threat. How do you run away from a T-Rex? Well, fast, obviously, but scientists at the University of Manchester have used supercomputers to work out that dinosaurs trying to escape the mighty T-Rex probably ran for their lives using their two rear legs rather than all four The research team used the supercomputers to build 3D animations to find out how plant-eating dinosaurs like the hadrosaur would have run away from their predators. You can see all the animations on the Planet Earth online website where you can also find details of all the stories I've mentioned. Earlier we heard from a gold mine in Northern Ireland. So what if you want to lay your hands on some gold? Legally, I mean. Well, how about panning? We've seen it in the westerns, but does it work, and can you ever make money from it? Garth Earls, from the Geological Survey of Northern Ireland, took me to a stream with his pan to see what we could find. One thing I might try
2: is to take some of the moss off the bedrock. The moss? The moss, because moss itself, if you look at it under a microscope, is quite filamentous, and... Whenever you get a small flood in the stream itself here, the gold, if it's bounced around in turbulent water, can often stick in the moss. And by washing the moss out, you enhance your chance of finding something. So not only will we try taking some of the sediment here, but we'll try taking some of the moss as well and see if there's any gold trapped within the filaments in the
0: moss. So you're grabbing these handfuls of of moss from the the rock, and it's quite... Secluded area of the stream here. We've got the trees arching above us, a little waterfall below us, lots of moss and bracken. The stream itself only a, a few centimetres depth. Just try washing some of this out
2: now just to see how much sediment
0: is in it. So I've put the moss into the pan
2: and I've filled the pan half with water, and I'm just going through, a I guess, a washing process, agitating the moss, trying to get whatever sediment has been trapped in the moss.
0: So this is a swilling the water around in it, letting the lighter stuff float away on the stream, leaving hopefully the heavier stuff behind in the bowl. Yep, that's it, and I think at this
2: stage you can see that with just a small amount of agitation and of the pan, that there's already quite a, a tail of darker coloured material that's staying behind in the pan. Of course, you can mix it up again and start the process over as many times as you want because if there's anything there, if it's heavy enough, it's not going to go away. You have to be quite patient
0: for this, don't you? There are no large ingots of gold and there's not necessarily any gold in this pan at all. No. It's a process that requires
2: diligence and patience and the ability to withstand a bad back. You can probably spend time and you can pan gold from several areas, enough probably to, to make a wedding band. And you know, friends of mine have done that, but you're never going to make yourself rich. So should we have a look at the sediment here? Let's have a look at this with the, with the hand lens and see if we've discovered anything. And it is possible, yes, I think we do have, believe it or not, quite an angular
0: grain of gold. We've got, gold. We've got gold! And there you go, geology in action. That was edited, so if you're wondering how long the whole process took, it was about an hour for one tiny fleck of gold which I have since lost. That was recorded a few months ago, by the way. You won't catch me wading around in an Irish stream in January. There are many more stories from the natural world on the Planet Earth online website. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We've got loads more plans for this Natural Environment Research Council podcast. If you like it, please tell your friends.